Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When we think about American cuisine... We don't think about California. There is no cuisine of California. There's ingredients, beautiful ingredients. Cuisine is how do you eat the whole farm? How do you eat the whole landscape? That's a cuisine. That is Southern cooking. All of those things that we think about as some of the most delicious Americanized food came out of desperation. It came out of how do you take depleted soils and make them filled with fertility? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. When we launched Politicology, we committed to exploring how politics touches every part of our lives together. Well beyond the election horse races and what's happening in Washington, that at its core, politics is how we decide what to do in the shared parts of our lives. We talked about how politics affects the water we drink, the air we breathe, the food we eat. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Food is political. From what we grow, to who grows it, and how much it costs, to what food we have access to and who cooks it, food is a central part of our shared lives. I'm excited about today's episode because I'm sitting here with someone I've long admired and wanted to meet since all the way back in 2015 when the hit series Chef's Table featured him and his groundbreaking work in their inaugural season. Chef Dan Barber has been described as America's philosopher chef. He is most well-known as the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Between the two restaurants, he has three Michelin stars and has been awarded a Michelin Green Star for the work at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Under President Obama, Dan served on the President's Council on Physical Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. Time Magazine even named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He's been the recipient of numerous James Beard Awards, including Best Chef and Outstanding Chef, and for writing and literature for his book, The Third Plate, Field Notes on the Future of Food. Chef Dan, welcome to Politicology, and thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you. So before we dig in, um, I would love to have you uh, set the table for our listeners by briefly describing at the present moment where you think we currently find ourselves in the story of American agriculture. Um, What do you see as the successes and the problems in the way America eats and the way we feed ourselves? Well, more has changed in food in the last uh, 60 years than in the last uh, 600. And uh, for the most part, food has gotten uh, less ecologically sound in its production practices, uh, less fair in its farming practices, uh, less healthy uh, in the food we eat, uh, and definitely less delicious. Uh, So uh, on all accounts, eaters are losing out in the the 
uh, game of feeding ourselves three times a day. Uh, and it's true that we are feeding a lot of people more cheaply uh, than we did 60 years ago. Um, but the uh, costs of that, both on our environment and on our health, are astronomical. And I think we're just getting a glimpse of what that looks like now uh, in, in pollution, uh, in soil degradation, uh, and now in COVID. I mean, uh, what, what could be more striking than uh, just the, the data that's coming out of COVID you know, in the midst of it is, is just so alarming. It's, it's 92% of COVID deaths are, di- are, are, are underlying conditions, 92%. So the underlying conditions, when you look at them, are three things. I think it's 95% of the 92%, okay, are three things. One is diabetes, the other is obesity, and the other is hypertension or some heart-related. Uh, so all three of those are, are diet-related diseases. You know, it's food that is killing us in COVID. Food. Uh, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. You know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that that's our vaccine. But one could argue that that's our vaccine. Uh, and that uh, we have been uh, handed uh, a a food system uh, that is killing us, literally. And COVID just peels that back. I mean, nothing is new in those statistics. It's just that you have a virus that comes along and we are just exquisitely vulnerable to it. You know, I was just this morning, I was on the phone with a a Rockefeller scientist. He told me something, I think it's going to stay with me. Let me make sure I get this right. But he said, we were talking about these underlying conditions. You know, he said most of them are comorbidity, which means right, they have right. one, more than one of the three. Right. Uh, but he said, you know, if you could just isolate for diabetes, he said, we looked at the statistics of diabetes as type 2 diabetes, as adult onset diabetes. He said, you know, in 1975, there were, there were so many fewer cases in 1975. In other words, America didn't have the, 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 the issue with uh, type 2 diabetes that it has today to the extent that if COVID hit in 1975, it would have been a bad flu season. Just on the type 2 alone. And type 2, as we know, uh, you know, it, there's nothing more diet-related than that. So um, I think coming out of COVID, when we come out of it, whatever it is here as we, as we emerge, is a better, I hope, a better appreciation uh, and consciousness around food and how it affects our, our health. Uh, because as I said, it's deadly. So your, your book is titled The Third Plate. Can you explain how you developed the concept and lay out what the first, second, and third plates are? Yeah, the, the first plate is the plate that our grandparents, you and me, our grandparents, uh, and maybe even our parents grew up on. And that's the American protein-centric uh, uh, steak lunch and steak dinner. Uh, and it's from a cow that's been fed, uh, you know, a lot of grain. Uh, and uh, that steak is cheaper than it than it ever was. Uh, there's, a, there's a smattering of, like, vegetables uh, and, and a little bit of grain. But essentially, it's a primary piece of protein that's centering the plate twice a day, seven days a week. The second plate is the more recent emergence of this farm-to-table food consciousness plate of food. Uh, and that has a lot to do with, uh, with, a, with a protein-centric plate of food that's, that, that uh, is grass-fed, let's say, in the case of beef. Uh, or it's from a, a, a regional uh, uh, organic pork producer. Uh, and 
there's still a smattering of vegetables, but the vegetables are more often than not uh, local because there's this explosion in farmers markets and CSAs and supermarkets that carry local produce. And then there's some grains on the plate, uh, and they're they're either organic or more and more whole grains, which is which is a great development. So the right. second plate's a lot better than the first plate. But my argument is when I studied it was that the architecture of that plate of food is still the same. Uh, and that's protein centric, where we are relying, we're taking our our natural resources and devoting it to uh, the most unsustainable and wasteful diet in the history of the world, which is the Western diet, it's the American diet. Uh, we today have, uh, we grow 200 million acres of corn and soybeans in, on some of the greatest farmland in the world, in the history mm-hmm. of the world. <laughs> uh, and we don't eat any of it. Uh, we feed it either to, uh, mostly to cows. Uh, we feed a little bit to, to make plastic and gasoline our gas tanks. But for the most part, that energy, that food, that, it, that sustenance is going through a cow or eating the cow. So there, that is about the most inefficient system you, you could ever create. Yeah. Uh, and it's allowing us, because of our tax dollars, supporting that system to eat very uh, essentially cheap meat, uh, but at a, at a great cost. So the third plate yeah. uh, is uh, a recommendation to change the architecture of the plate. And that's, that's what's happening in restaurants around the world with chefs that are, that are rethinking uh, what a plate of food should look like. Uh, and they're doing it in this pursuit of deliciousness, which is really at the heart of the whole book and the heart of my work is the pursuit of deliciousness. Because as you know, if we start pointing a finger at people for what they eat and indict mm-hmm. them for their diet choices, uh, it'll last about as long as this conversation, you yeah. know? It yeah. doesn't doesn't stick. Yeah. So what we need to do is in in become uh, not uh, armies of virtue, but uh, you know armies of of greed and hedonism. Yeah. Uh, and and chefs are you know good at creating that kind of context of delight and pleasure around the table. And so I'm arguing for a plate of food that's not vegetarian. You know I'm not a vegetarian. Right. Uh, it's about uh, it's about eating meat, but eating a lot less meat. Um, you know, for example, last night uh, at Blue Hill. Uh, we, you came in and you would have, uh, 30 courses at my restaurant, generally a tasting menu. Uh, I'd say probably 15 to 20 of those had meat in them, but you didn't have one single plate of food where hmm. there was a overwhelming protein centric plate. Uh, not one. Where it was a uh, meat dish. It was a meat dish. Yeah. yeah. You know, I sort of played with that at the end of the meal last night. We did a, a steak of these incredibly delicious carrots. We've left the carrots in the ground up until the last freeze. Mm. Uh, that means they were planted in March. They almost made it a year, uh, but we took them out right before the last freeze. And I, we tested them for sugar. They were like 17% sugar. I mean, these things were like candy wow. sticks. And I roasted them for 12 hours and they're the most beautiful. And I glazed them in meat sauce. And this wasn't a vegetarian dish, but uh, we carved it like a steak. So t- table, table side at the, at the table. Uh, and we served it with potatoes and cream spinach. And it was like, just like mm. a steak dinner. And then after they, and people had this, we came around with a slice of steak on the side, you know? <laughs> and it was to say like, like, this is the proportion we should be eating meat in. You know, we should lead with these root vegetables, these whole grains, uh, and we should have, enjoy meat, enjoy the right kind of meat, meat that's raised on grass uh, and grass alone, because that produces the most ecologically beneficial uh, uh, return uh, the most nutrition uh, per bite and absolutely the most flavor. And it's free because the sun uh, mm. feeds the grass, the grass feeds the cow, and the cow feeds us. It's one of the great uh, uh, natural inventions that we can take advantage of. But we have to do it 
in accordance with the carrying capacity of yeah. what the, the land can provide. And that, for us, last night was a little side of steak after you had your, your carrot steak dinner. That sounds delicious. I'm going to make a lot of people hungry now, I think. I want to dig in more to uh, the pursuit of deliciousness, as you put it. Um, I think in the current context, we have this notion that food that tastes good must be bad for you. Um, can you talk about the agricultural concessions that led to this perception and then what you found about the connection between flavor and nutrition when you started breeding seeds for flavor? Yeah, I don't know where the food that's good for you uh, uh, has to taste bad comes from. Our, our Puritan background where you have to make sacrifices yeah. left, right, and center. I'm Jewish. I have to make sacrifices everywhere too. <laughs> and we, we don't have that perception of food either. So I don't know. I don't get it except the last time we tried virtuousness uh, around uh, a food production uh, and high moral ethical standards was really the hippie movement in the mm. late '60s and '70s, uh, where you know white food, you, you know everything was brown and and everything was virtuous, but nothing tasted good, uh, you know. And that movement didn't last. Right. Um, uh, couldn't be more high minded and more moral than that than the, than what those people were talking about. That was the really the birth of organic. It was about on a whole organism. It wasn't about the particular thing of what you ate only or how it was farmed. It wasn't just that it was no pesticides or fertilizer. It was that who was growing it and how was it growing it? How was, how was it being grown? Who, who was getting it to you? I mean, it was the whole, that's organic. It's an organism, the one, one whole thing. It was very smart. It was a very uh, uh, thoughtful, connected, and, and appropriate look at how we should be eating. The problem was the food didn't taste good. And so I don't know. I think we're living off of a lot of that perception, like that kind of food that's that's virtuous is terrible. When in fact, as we know, if you look around cuisines and cultures around the world uh, that are mainly based on indigenous peasant uh, heritage food ways, mm -hmm. they were trying to eke out what the land could provide. Right. Just eke out enough to feed themselves or family and their neighbors and uh, figure out a pattern uh, of eating that supported uh, that kind of agricultural landscape. And that that's the history of cuisine. That's the history. In many ways, cuisine and culture are one and the same thing because mm -hmm. you're figuring out not just patterns of eating, but you're figuring out from that uh, the way you live your life. And you, you, you cannot eat a steak twice a day, seven days a week. That's not allowed. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when I say carrying capacity land. That, that wasn't allowed. Before we had chemical agriculture, you could not do that. And what that uh, ended up spurring is a creativity around cuisine and ultimately culture that expresses a place, a sense of place and a sense of history and who you are as, as people. I mean, look, yeah. here's an example. This came to mind. Like you go to Japan and you'll ha you'll probably end up having rice twice a day, seven days a week. Okay, so that's a nice analog to our meat our meat uh, expectation. Mm. But uh, for enable the the ability to grow rice that much rice for your country, you had to have a very intense rotation uh, system of crop farming that allowed you to have the fertility and the breakup disease cycles to get you the rice. So barley and buckwheat were two crops that worked very well uh, on most of Japanese soil. And what did they do uh, you know, with the buckwheat? They didn't have Dan Barber wagging their finger and saying, uh, you know, if you're going to have your rice, you better eat your buckwheat because buckwheat uh, uh, cultivation into rice cultivation uh, is, 
it works and it gets you your rice. No, what they did is made soba noodles, you know? So mm. you, 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 you have soba noodles three or four times a week, not because you want to eat your rice, but because it's delicious, <laughs> you know? And if you take that as a parable for, actually, it's not really a parable. It's the truth of, look at every cuisine around the world. I mean, look at, we think of Mexico, we think of the global South or Mexico, we think of Mexico as corn and masa and those incredible masa yeah. interpretations. Oh my God, this is so mm. delicious of 800 different kinds of corn every square mile. Unbelievable. But actually it's bean culture because you couldn't have any of that corn without beans. And that's why beans are everywhere in Mexican food because it's the nitrogen for the corn. Mm. Uh, you know, it's in, in, in India, you have, uh, uh, wheat is one of the king crops, but you have to have lentils into wheat because that's the leguminous crop that gets you the wheat. In the northern, in the western hemisphere, of course, it's wheat, but but barley in, into wheat is the is the rotation crop uh, all over Europe. So beer and bread are synonymous. I mean, that's true. Every Italy, same thing. Everywhere you look, there is uh, a slew of of cover rotation crops that gets you the king crop. And in our circumstance, wheat is the king crop. Global South is corn and in the East is mm. rice. And all those cultures and cuisines over thousands of years figured out how to get that king crop out of the ground through a, uh, a meticulously timed rotation of hundreds uh, of other crops that allow you to have the fertility to get you that crop that you want. That's cuisine. That you, so you eat in accordance with uh, how you're farming and what you can eke out of a landscape. That's not a deprivation. That's exciting yeah. as hell. Yeah. That's exciting as hell. Yeah. We just in America, look, we, we came just don't to- do that. We don't, well, we don't do it because we we were never forced into those kind of negotiations. We're young. Yeah. You know, the countries I just mentioned, I've been farming for 4,000 years. <laughs> Soils are exhausted. Yeah. So they didn't have the luxury that we had, which is to come over here and throw a seed in the ground and you're in the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's what happened. You know, the English, they came, I mean, it's not like anybody knew how to farm. If you knew how to farm, you had farmland, mm. you know? You didn't have farmland. So you came over here and what happened? You were the luckiest person in the world because you, east of the Mississippi, you had virgin soils and you had rainfall. A very, there are very mm. few places that have virgin soils, uh, rainfall and temperate climates. I mean, that just like doesn't happen. So, you know, it was very successful. And, and when soils started to crash, on the East Coast, and really the production of food was really in the South. I mean, it was Virginia South or, or, or Maryland South is where, you know, agriculture was in the early 1700s and through the 1700s, 1800s. And what happens? You know, we were exporting rice, tobacco, wheat, uh, vegetable all over the world, yeah. not just to, uh, to the colonies, not just the East Coast, but all over the world. We export market. And the soils culture, the great soil crisis of the 1820s, uh, you know, we uh, farmers dropped their plows and where'd they go? They plowed up the Midwest. We always talk about manifest destiny yeah, as like right. this calling. It wasn't a call, it was a calling to eat. <laughs> and and there were virgin soils. And we plowed up the prairie. Uh, and what's interesting about that, and by the way, we're now at California, you know, very recently at California. California is like a very recent agricultural invention. It's like the last hundred years, that's California. Even one could argue in 50 years. What do you mean by that? Well, it means that, it means that we, were, we lost fertility on the East Coast in the 1820s and we were forced into the Midwest, plowing up the prairie, by the way, the US government made that happen. The Homestead Act, among many others, just gave you free land. Mm. And if you could claim the land and farm it, you had to farm it. They didn't tell you how you had to farm it. They didn't tell you what you just had to farm. Something. Just grow something. <laughs> And of course, we grew tons of wheat, corn, uh, and and other staple crops that ended up becoming our American diet. And there was a lot of land 
uh, and a lot of free access to land. And that's that was the beginning of our lack of food culture because we were never forced into negotiations that every other country culture cuisine had for thousands of years. When we ran out of soil fertility there, we kept going to California. And, you know, in the last, since the 1960s, California has been the bread, real breadbasket. But how much water is left? How much fertility mm-hmm. is left? Mm-hmm. Uh, degradation everywhere you look in terms of natural resources anyway. And how long are we going to prop that up for? So we're at sort of at the end of the line is, is my point of, of living high on the hog. And high right. on the hog's the first plate. To a certain extent, it's the elitism second plate. Right. We need a whole new understanding conception of food. And it cannot be out of deprivation or sense of deprivation. It has to be a sense of delight, pleasure, hedonism. Because, you know, yes. Americans like... I, I don't want to get too down on America because I just said there's no folk food culture. And so, you know, it's kind of hopeless. It's not hopeless because of one, one thing that I, that I think about a lot is Americans are very good at greed, you know, mm. is the one thing that we just have perfected. It's like when we like something, we're willing to pay more for it and we're willing to go out of our way to get it. And if it gives us pleasure, we're, we're great at pursuing it. You can't say that. That's true. Actually, for a lot of other countries, I mean, especially when food, think, when you think about food in the last, let's say, 10 years, the dizzying speed that things get introduced in America. Just think of this Greek yogurt. Where yeah. was Greek yogurt 10 years ago? <laughs> I mean, it was in Greece, yeah. literally. And it was a bunch of chefs who love the viscosity of that and, and love the, 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 uh, uh, the uh, adaptations you could do with Greek yogurt. And that took off. And today, Greek yogurt is, you know, in Walmart. Uh, and, and, you know, kale. Where was kale? Kale. I mean, sushi. Where was sushi? All of the, now think about Japan. Yeah. Uh, think about France. Think about Italy. Think about India. Do you think those food cultures shift with that kind of mm-hmm. dizzying speed? No. That is a very good sign of what's possible. And, I think we're seeing it now. We're seeing generation, millennials and Generation Z especially, are asking some serious questions about how food is produced and want serious answers and are not dumbed down to advertising and the rest of the thing. And I think that's, you know, ultimately we're playing a, a, a very nice long game if we keep to that hedonism and delight. By the way, the problem with the hedonism and delight is in one of the, in, in an example I gave is the, is the Greek yogurt. Because look, we developed a taste overnight it, not even right, in seconds for Greek yogurt. And well, what happened to the whey that's strained off to make Greek yogurt? You make Greek yogurt by taking regular yogurt, you strain off the whey, right? And right. you get you get the richness of mm-hmm. yogurt that you don't get from a full, full-fledged yogurt. So what happens to the whey? Well, in upstate New York, there's there, there was just a ter- there is, was, still is a terrible issue with um uh with leftover whey. Uh because because the farmers, the dairy farmers, uh, deliver uh, the 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 milk, and then the manufacturers make you take back the whey because they have no use for the whey. Mm. So what do you do with the whey? You dump the whey, and dump dumping whey is a is a is a, a toxic uh, sourced elements and it's a toxic um, uh, waste for soils at a certain level. And upstate New York, all these problems, all these problems in Wisconsin with it too. I mean, that is the that's a nice parable for what's wrong with a food system that doesn't uh, create a pattern of eating and there's no culture to it. The culture is what happens in Greece. You eat Greek yogurt, but you also eat lamb marinated in whey and you you drink elixirs all summer mm-hmm. that are whey-based for protein and for your microbiome right. and your overall health and, and and the skin of every Greek person you look at, it, right? <laughs> it's like that comes from the whey. But in America, we have no culture for drinking whey or eating whey or using it in our food. So it gets dumped. 
and it becomes a waste. And what we need to figure out is a pattern of eating and an orchestration of our food system that is reflected in our diets. That is delicious. That is delicious. Mm. I'll give you one more hopeful thing because yeah. my, my yogurt thing didn't end up being so hopeful. Here's, <laughs> here's my hopeful thing. What happened when those farmers dropped their plows and moved to the Midwest with free land? Who was left behind was largely slave owners, but slaves. And slaves, interestingly, uh, came from uh, parts of Africa, deep agriculture traditions. I mean, in part, that was the, that was the, uh, the interest in, in slaves, so the free labor is the knowledge uh, and, the, mm. and the work ethic and the knowledge. Uh, and what, you, what they brought with them uh, was seeds and know-how. And they knew about rotations, and what, what, what came out of the horrible um, blight uh, on our history of slavery was in part some of the greatest lessons in cuisine and patterns of eating. We, when we think about American cuisine, we don't think about California cuisine. I mean, there, there is no cuisine of California. Right. There's ingredients, beautiful ingredients. Put that in air quotes. Yeah, yeah. right. A cuisine <laughs> is how do you eat the whole farm? How do you eat the whole landscape? How do you eat a whole ecology? That's a cuisine. That is Southern cooking. You know, the Carolina rice kitchen, Creole cooking, all of those things that we think about as some of the most delicious Americanized food came out of desperation. It came out of how do you take depleted soils and make them filled with fertility? You know, you, you can have, you can, you, you, we're going to eat rice, but uh, in America or in the South, you're, you're going to um, not have buckwheat into rice because that doesn't work on those warm soils. You need to see stuff like cowpeas because cowpeas provide the nitrogen that's needed and they grow in a short season. And that's what uh, 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 you know, a high heat, high humidity environment will tolerate. So you create dishes like Hop and John's. You know, Hop and John's is 50% cowpea and 50% white. It's mm. the same thing as the soba and the, mm. and the, and the rice. You know? mm. If you want your rice in the South, uh, you you have to eat your cowpeas. And oh, by the way, you know something called collard greens desalinate soils. So, soils that are salinated are sick soils, soils that have been depleted of all nutrients and become salinated. To desalinate, you do it through collards and, and sweet potatoes. Collards and sweet potatoes are bedrocks of Southern cooking because it was a return to fertility and a return to what could be produced. And so sweet potatoes are all over Southern cooking and so are collards. But that's the kind of, mm. but you don't look at sweet potatoes, mm. collards, rice, and cowpeas and, and pork, which was not big honking pieces of pork chops, right. but smatterings of pork in things like Hop and John's and all these other dishes. You don't think of Southern cooking as deprivation cooking. No. We, th we think of it as the most celebratory, delicious, hedonistic yeah. cooking, but it came out of depri deprivation, not just the slavery aspect of it, which in and of itself was so horrific, but the farming practice were desperation to return soils to any kind of productivity. And that to me is a very hopeful thing. That's a very joyous thing. And it's based on history. It's based on taking seed and genetics and farming know-how and, and infusing massive diversity. But you have to have the food culture mimic that call to diversity and necessity of farming uh, to support the ecology. That's the ticket. Okay, so we don't have a food culture and we've depleted our soil because of commercial agriculture practices. Right. Is there an incentive yet to changing the way commercial agriculture is done? And if there, if there is, clearly there isn't enough of an incentive yet, what would those incentives have to look like to change the machine? You know, if you had asked me that question when I was writing the third plate, I would say farm to table, farm to table. Look, I wrote, I wrote this, I started out writing the third plate because I wanted to write a recipe book about farm to table because I, I, in, in mm. 2014, it was the most exciting social movement in America and still very exciting, but 
uh, it was really hitting its apex then. And I wanted to write uh, a, a little story about um, what is the recipe? How do you, mm-hmm. you know, it started, you know what it started? It started with a, a, a loaf of bread that I baked at the restaurant. Seriously, I, when I opened Blue Hill Stone Barns, I was one of the few chefs. A lot of so many chefs were doing farm to table, but I I was I was really digging into it with the farm. I wasn't farm tail. I was a I was a restaurant in the middle of a farm, so I was really had skin in the game. Yeah. And I was looking at grains and only using local grains. And one of these farmers that I got to know was was um, uh, uh, selling me um, uh, an emmer wheat, which is an old biblical wheat, uh, and it, it produced this bread. I fresh milled it, you know, and then we baked it right after milling it. It was so jaw-droppingly delicious, you know. It was like that thing that, you know, our customers sell their firstborn to have another slice of. So I got really well known for it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book about that, about farm table. I'm going to start with grain because no one thinks of local, regional farm to table with grain. At least back then they didn't. So I go to this guy, Klaus Martin's farm in Western New York. And I'm standing there. It's like the first, literally the first five minutes, okay. And I'm looking around and I, I see, um, barley in the fields. It's 2,000 acres. So I was, we were at a perch where I could look uh, literally 360. Nice. So I see, I see barley, I see buckwheat, I see rye, I see millet. And I see all these leguminous crops. I see cover crops. I saw brassica crops. <laughs> and I see this little tiny little slice of wheat. And it dawned on me that first five minutes. I was like, wow, I am the emperor without clothes. Because mm-hmm. what I'm looking at is a full-on system of truly regenerative farming. These are crops that this farmer Klaus farms in meticulously timed rotations uh, around and around the farm. And when his soil is locked and loaded with the kind of fertility and lack of disease that he, that he fungal and otherwise that he has uh, ready to go, then he'll go with the wheat. Because the wheat, mm. the wheat is a, is a, is a, is a soil sucker. I mean, it like mm. if fertility has massive uh, needs for fertility. So you have to have your soil in such prime condition that you get uh, a, a wheat crop that gives me that jaw-dropping delicious mm. emmer wheat that I became famous for. But what was I doing <laughs> to support the rest of the farm? Zero. And where did the rest of the farm's crops go? Well, Klaus didn't have a market for any of that stuff. I mean, nobody eats barley and buckwheat. We don't have the soba equivalent here, right? right. So it all goes into animals. Uh, it gets dumped into animals uh, for pennies on the dollar. So Klaus loses money essentially on all the crops, except for the wheat and some of the corn that he was growing organically uh, and, and charges me top dollar. So what I just described isn't just an emperor without clothes, which I felt like I was in that minute. I really, for me, it was a before and after moment. I feel like, you know, I never cooked the same again. Actually, I, I went home that after that trip and I created a this dish that I was serving last night still, 10 years later, it's called rotation risotto. And I took everything from Klaus's farm, uh, the buckwheat, the barley, the millet, the rotation crops, the, the, the uh, cover crops, the leguminous crops, and I made a risotto. And there's no rice, no rice is grown on where he is. Uh, but I did, and no wheat. So I did everything and I, I created a risotto, called it rotation risotto. And everyone was mm-hmm. like, what's rotation risotto? But I was like, if you're gonna have a piece of bread for your next course, which everybody wanted when they came to my restaurant, you're going to have to eat the crops that give you that bread. And that to make became, the soil. Yeah, to make right. the soil fertile enough to give us not just a, a wheat, a local wheat, but a exceptionally mm-hmm. delicious wheat. And so that's how, to this day, we serve some type of lowly rotational grain uh, crop before we serve the bread because that's your that's your tax. Uh, you know, if you want to eat your wheat, that's what you need to do. Same idea, buckwheat, soba, soba, buckwheat, and and rice, bowl of rice. Same idea. So so you know that I like I don't even know if I answered your question there, well, but it, but I got off on a tangent. The question is really about incentives. But is that risotto 
Um, did you serve that at Family Meal? I served it Family Meal. I've I've served it because in different iterations all the I time. Think did you go to Family Meal? I, I went to Family Meal in October. It was my first time, and I think oh. that was my favorite dish. Oh actually. man, that's nice. <laughs> the risotto was my favorite oh, dish. That's nice to hear. Thank you. Um, yeah. But but the the question is about, and maybe the answer is flavor. I don't know. But the but the question is, I think you're right about uh, finger wagging and getting yeah. people to change. Right? It doesn't work that way. No. The, the 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 machinery, the chains, the systems will change when there's an incentive to do so for the for the for the for for the rational actors. How what do the incentives need to look like for the way we the way we don't honor the soil, the way we have not had to negotiate with the soil the way other cultures and countries have had to do to produce their food culture? We yeah. have never had to do that. Right. We have something different here, and I don't know how it changes to me i mean look you're talking to guys wearing a sh- uh, white chef's coat you know and and i could be wearing a white doctor's coat medical doctor's coat because those are one of the same thing you alluded to that in a previous question i never answered but taste flavor true jaw-dropping deliciousness that i described in that wheat is nutrition i mean it's flavonoids mm. flavonoids are flavor flavor mm. is uh and flavor nutrition same thing i've studied this now so much with with breeders that work a lot with seed breeders and you start to see where in genetic lines that breeders are selecting for you at some point you have a choice breeding flavor is over here and and yield and uniformity is here and you have to make it there's like a you know there's a, a, a what do you call it in a road a fork in a road <laughs> and you make a choice and i think that the best way to convince people uh, of of the right patterns of eating is to make food uh, as delicious as it could and should be uh, because like i said you don't complain when you go to japan and eat your soba noodles you don't yeah. complain you don't complain when you go and eat your uh, your uh, uh, your um, uh, lentils in India. You don't complain when you go and eat your your uh, taft and millet in North Africa. You know you don't you don't complain. You know it's not that's not you don't complain about beans in Mexico. Right. <laughs> you know. So you just we just need to figure that out uh, it, and create a food culture that covets those kind of foods in America and stop this living high on the hog deal. We've lived off of virgin soil. I can't say that enough. We are the, we are an experiment. We were an experiment station is what we were. Uh, coast to coast was virgin soil, and that produced a lot of food. We invested heavily in technology, and and the government, uh, for a certain amount of time, made some smart decisions on those investments. Land-grant university college system would be one of them that created a, a system of investment in agriculture that made us the breadbasket of the world. But all of it was supported by uh, an incredible amount of, of virgin soil, which is the, the biggest bank account you can have. We have exhausted that bank account. We've exhausted our free water supply, and we are now living uh, on borrowed time. And, and we need to change our diet. I, I Just back to what you said is it can't be done unless it's done in the context of pleasure and delight. No yeah. one's gonna, And no one wants to be told what the hell to eat. Yeah. No one wants to be yeah. told how to vote. No one wants to be told to wear a mask. They got to taste it. But you, got, you cannot tell anybody mm-hmm. how to eat because yeah. it's, it's your mother wagging your finger in your yeah. face. And that, no, no way that's going to work. Okay, I want to ask you about synthetic meat in the context of a protein-based diet. Um, and I, and I mean for for our listeners, um, uh, when I say synthetic meat, uh, this is a relatively new development in food production. I'm not talking about plants made to taste and chew like meat. I'm talking about uh, our ability to now grow meat in a lab without any animals, um, meat that is genetically identical to meat from a slaughtered animal. And part of why I'm fascinated by this is the possibility that it could curb you know methane emissions, which can produce climate change, but. Um, at the end of last year, uh, Chef Jose Andres signed on to serve um, 
Uh, Good Meats, that's a company that's producing this. They're lab-grown or cultivated chicken at one of his restaurants. That's pending regulatory review. Um, and he joined their board of directors. Earlier in 2021, Chef Dominique Kren announced that she was going to serve cultivated chicken at Atelier Kren. And that's also pending regulatory review. I just I wonder about this development and how you're thinking about lab-grown protein uh, and whether it could shape big agribusiness meat suppliers and what are the challenges that you see for smaller farming operations. I mean, the, the the challenges for smaller farming operations and any farming operation is disastrous if this really were to take on. I'm, I'm skeptical that this is our future. I mean, uh, you know, they said the same thing about margarine when I was growing <laughs> up, you know, margarine. Why would you ever buy butter? Why would you ever eat butter? I think you I've know, seen those ads, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it wasn't just, I mean, it was, it was accepted fact, you know. And then the, the I remember the science, the, the great, uh, uh, professor of nutrition at Columbia, Joan Gussow, said, "I don't eat uh, I don't eat margarine because I trust cows more than scientists." <laughs> and and I trust you know I trust I trust chefs. Most chefs aren't touching this stuff. I I, mm. I didn't know I didn't know about Dominique Crenn, but uh, and that's unfortunate. I, I, just, I my sense is that the disaster waiting to happen is that the people who produce our food, i.e., farmers and farming communities, uh, are the the ones who are going to lose out here. Um, mm. You know the the big processors uh, of which, you know, in the meat industry, there's four or five. Right. Uh, they're the ones who are going to, that's why they're all in. That's why Cargill's, that's why everybody's investing in this stuff because they win any way you slice it. Uh, and w- what we need is an agricultural system that improves the ecological functioning of the, of the ecosystem. It needs to, you can, we, we tend to be locked in this notion that agriculture uh, we should shoot for regenerative, which means less bad than our current agriculture system. And that is the wrong way to think of it. Less bad is, uh, well, let's take uh, some cows off of the land uh, and their methane uh, production and let's uh, you know, uh, cultivate it in a cell and that's less bad. Uh, but the, the idea that the cow is the problem is the problem. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. You know, It's like the cow's not the problem. The cow will sequester more carbon than trees if you treat the cow right. The cow is an herbivore. An herbivore takes the sunlight from the sun, uses the energy that it produces from grass, and with its four stomachs, unlike any animal in the world, does what we can't even dream of doing. We can't walk outside and eat a lawn for lunch, you know? They can. And in eating the lawn for lunch, you are stimulating root systems. You are stimulating soil carbon sequestration on a level that far outweighs mm. forests. But you cannot do that in a way that allows you to eat meat twice a day, seven days a week. We would have to eat a lot less meat. That doesn't mean a vegetarian. It means you would eat according to your region. In this region, in the Hudson Valley, yeah. it's, uh, what, 33 degrees out today. I would say meat is a big part of the diet at certain times of the year. Uh, but that's not seven ounces of protein twice a day. Mm. That is meat that uh, democratizes the cow, you know, and allows us to eat delicious food. You have to come back into cooking and you have to come back into experience the flavors that are truly delicious. That, to me, that's the most hedonistic existence you can imagine, you know? And like, it's right there for the taking. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're being robbed of our senses when you when you get these replacement meats because it it's the one fix answer you know mm. and we're being sold that because someone's making a lot of money on it uh, that's really unfortunate you know 
Uh, you know, you know, I was just I was just yesterday I was talking to a cattle yeah. rancher. There is 400 million acres of pasture land in the United States of America that uh, that cows uh, graze on uh, until they're sent to a CAFO, until they're sent to a con- confinement feeding operation for the last couple of months. 400 million. You know what? You know how many acres of uh, of uh, of pasture there was uh, 40 years ago? About 400 million. It's the same thing. That is land that cannot grow grains and cannot grow vegetables and cannot grow tubers. That is grassland. And the best way to manage grassland is with herbivores. And the best way to run herbivores on grassland is through 100% grass feeding with great grass management. They will fatten up beautifully. They won't fatten up as quickly as corn and they won't be as sickly fatty and they won't require the antibiotics that they need to live, but they will live the greatest life and they will be net, not just carbon neutral, they will be net carbon positive if you allow them to do their work. And our job as eaters, whether you are in the middle of midtown Manhattan or you're on a farm in Indiana, your job as an eater is to respect that relationship, Uh, an herbivore, grass, sunlight. That's a very simple relationship. And our responsibility is to respect it. And respecting it means treating it in a way that, that has reverence. And what we're doing now is, is we, we are so removed from biological realities that we think technology can fix everything. Um, that's the problem. All this tech money is dry, is running towards, uh, towards agriculture, you know? And, and nobody understands biology because technology, because a, an impossible burger is the analog to technology. It is the, it's the A to B. Mm. It's the computer program that, that, go, that you do this and it does that. Biology does not work that way. Biology mm. is infinitely more complex. It's much more interesting and it's much more complex and it's natural food that's a natural system. And a food system that is truly delicious and, and nutritious is biologically intensive. And that means it's inefficient because that's what biology is. And that's why I'm talking to you, looking at you with two eyes uh, and two nostrils uh, and two ears. It's inefficient. And that's what we need to celebrate and be respectful of. And in our modern food system, we keep thinking of technology solutions as the answer and we will lose. Mm. We started with bad healthcare outcomes from COVID. Bad outcomes from COVID due to underlying comorbidities, yeah. right? Um, and in the context of incentives for changing a system, do you think we're having a robust enough conversation about food leading to some of those comorbidities and the way we the way we produce food, the way we make food? Because when no, we think- because I don't know. You guys know how to have these conversations. I don't. <laughs> we're having get, it right now. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys can frame it. You know, the way you frame things is so smart. And I, I like, I can't, I don't know how to do because you come off as so elitist when you're talking to people about changing their diet. You know, everyone yeah, looks, right. at, looks at you and be like, oh, it's, you know, it's more expensive. And it's, a, you know, it's always, it's always expensive. It's always more expensive. And we have to be more sensitive to the expense. And I, I'm like, you know, I don't know about that, actually. I mean, I wouldn't try and uh, run as a politician on this platform, but I don't know about that. Mm. It's like, if I were sitting here with you in 19, um, uh, what are we in, 2022? So if I were to sit here with you in 1992, mm-hmm. 30 years ago, and I said to you, hey, hey dude, you know, um, there's just going to be this weird thing called um, uh, cable, <laughs> and uh, it's going to be uh, 97% penetration of American households, and 
uh, you'd be like, whoa, man, that's that's cool. And I'd be like, no, yeah, but it's going to cost you 150 bucks a month. You'd be like, what? <laughs> you'd be like, Americans are going to find $150 of disposable income for, you know, for, for a free TV? No way. That'll never happen. And then I said, hey, and now let me just add on one more thing. In 20, by 2020, uh, by 2010, there's going to be this thing called a cell phone. Uh, where people are going to find another $150 of disposable income uh, and the penetration is going to be 90 plus percent of that too. And you're going to be like, wait a minute, dude, 150 to $300 disposable income per month, per American, never. Well, you know what? We figured out how to prioritize that. Um, and if we did the same thing with food, because it's medicine and it's uh, environmental stewardship, uh, we could do the same thing a lot cheaper, yeah. a lot cheaper. But, you know, we don't do that. Instead, we take our tax dollars and allow uh, uh, our tax dollars to subsidize 200 million acres uh, of corn and soybeans, of which we don't eat a drop of it, a drop. Mm -hmm. And we feed it through cows and we, we call that efficiency. And it is, biologically speaking, the most inefficient system. What if those 200 million acres look like that guy Klaus's farm? What if they grew lentils and what if they grew uh, buckwheat and what if it grew barley and what if it grew all those rotation crops and there was a market and hmm. a distribution system hmm. to deliver it at a fair market value, wouldn't we be uh, uh, in a very different position? 200 million acres of rotational healthy grains in our diets. Oh my God. Feeding directly mm. to us. That's democratizing our landscape. That is democratizing. What we are doing is the most elitism, the most elitist food system, not just the worst food system in the history of the world, the most elitist because, and we're calling it cheap because we subsidize it with our tax dollars. It isn't cheap. It's very expensive. Forget about the costs on the environment. We know that. Forget mm -hmm. about the costs from COVID on healthcare. I'm just talking about little dollar for dollar. We're taking our tax dollars and we're allowing it to be spent mm. on that crap. And that all in the name of, you know, uh, uh, food that's affordable for, for the everyday American. Oh my God, it's such bullshit. And it just, I just now, now, you know, I'm angry because you, you look at COVID and you see the destruction, you see the, the, the uh, incidents of the consequences of that kind of policy. And you're like, well, that's, you know, not zero sum that man, that really hurts. And, uh, you know, we're exporting this food system around the world. It's not just here. Mm -hmm. We're not the only idiots. We're, we're, we are, we are, this lunacy is, is being exported around the world. And now we're saying, oh, to, you know, to fight back, we've got to create a cell cultured meat. It's like, oh, come on, man. It's mm -hmm. like, this is crazy, craziness. So there you go. I got to, I got to be less angry though, because that doesn't work either. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's, um, talk about something constructive. I want to end on a positive note anyway, yeah, and I want to be mindful of your time because we're coming up on it. I want you to talk a little bit about the role, the political power that chefs have in shaping palates, in determining what's popular by exposing people to what tastes good, um, setting trends. Uh, and then I also would love for you to talk a little bit about what an average person, listeners, can do in their daily choices to support um, brands, types of agriculture, that are healthy for the system that aren't going to perpetuate the problems we've just been talking about. Yeah. I'll take the second question. Okay. First. Second question is if you had asked me that when I was writing my book, I would have said the answer to what can the average person do is you vote three times a day with your fork as Michael Pollan likes to say. Mm. And it's a very, uh, uh, um, a dramatic vote that you're making and the food system will change when we vote for change and we change and we vote one, one, uh, one meal at a time. I don't believe that anymore. I just don't believe it. The, the intensification of corporate uh, food 
processing and food production and food distribution power is at its apex. And this one meal, one vote thing, it doesn't work anymore. So I still encourage you uh, to opt out of the big food chain and buy locally, buy regionally. I'm not talking about expensive products. I'm talking about uh, you know, rice and beans or, or whole, whole barley and beans, mm-hmm. uh, as some of the most delicious food that I eat on my nights off. Uh, and, and I'm talking about voting, you know, you got to vote, you got to, you got to make this stuff into, uh, a political platforms, uh, of change. Uh, and there's so many ways into it, environment, health, uh, uh, food, farming, uh, because the government props up this, this it props system. up the whole system it is so corrupt. And I, you know, I don't, I'm not sitting here saying, I mean, if I was running for office, I don't know that I'd be sitting here, you know, arguing that cause it's kind of a boring position, but it's so true. Well, it's is, so there, true. is there a thing you change? Is there a yeah. thing, like a single thing that comes to mind that like we can start here? Yeah. One thing I would do if I were a consumer is, is stop eating grain fed meat or stop drinking grain fed milk. Mm. If you're going to spend money anywhere in your diet, that's where to go because beef is central to the problem. And we are feeding into to, uh, a big lie. And the answer with this technological yeah. fix doesn't work. Mm. So I, I, pasture-based uh, uh, animal agriculture, when it comes to beef especially, is a phenomenal fix to a very, very complicated calculus of a, of a problem. Uh, and then your first uh, question was about, um, I forgot what the- How chefs yeah, can chef. begin to shape Yeah, this. that's what I was going yeah. It's like, it's weird that I'm a chef talking to you. You know, I don't, that doesn't yeah. escape me. You know, I, chefs have this power now. It's weird. I mean, I think it's weird. It's a political but podcast and we're talking about we food were talking with a chef. chef. With would that have happened 20 years ago? <laughs> no, 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 no. I would never have had the bully pulpit 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I read not that long ago, I read uh, this this uh, poll that said, <laughs> it was like uh, the the 20 uh, uh, professions that are uh, least to most trusted, uh, you know, politicians, like you, know, yeah, you want to know where they were on the list, right? By the way, journalists <laughs> weren't high up there either. Sure. But doctors were like, like nine or 10. You know who's number one? Chefs. Really? Yeah. I thought it was so interesting. Wow. I was like, most trusted. I was like, that's interesting. And, and doesn't that have wow. something to do with the fact that we don't, we, we really are this great French chef says we're, we're marchand de bonheur. We're merchants of happiness. Uh, mm. And that is, that's a nice trade. You know, that's a nice trade to be involved in because we're only in the pursuit of joyfulness, uh, you know, and pleasure. And that is true. I, there, I'm about to say I like every chef in my community because they're not corrupt or like any other community. <laughs> but one thing that chefs share, if they're actually a chef, their real chef, is this, uh, this like, this like pit bull uh, pursuit mm. of pleasure and hedonism for their diners. It may is because they want to look like better chefs or because not because they're environmentalists mm. or anything. It doesn't nothing. It's that is what we are hardwired for. And that makes us very trustworthy, actually. Yeah. It's like a good thing, you know? And so I don't know. I kind of like this idea that we could use chefs and the power of that hedonism to affect uh, cultural shifts um, that, that could be very exciting, you know? And what I said is true earlier about the American diet. The fact that we don't have... A, a food culture uh, is maybe our greatest strength, you know, uh, in, in to fix this, and that we can move in with real speed uh, to affect change. And that I think going to be very exciting future if we can do it right, because it's going to be very delicious. Chef Dan, thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you, pal. Nice to be here. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, 
You can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.